Well, we're in our final uh, week of our series, Lament. And we've been talking the last couple of weeks about the importance of, of what it means to really be real before God. And, and I've tried to stretch us a little bit. I've tried to stretch us into understanding that it's okay to cry out to God. <clears throat> in fact, when I was a, a little boy, I always thought it was not something that you were supposed to do. And I, I have friends and family members today who, who still kind of feel like you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to cry out to God because maybe that shows a weakness. But I think we've been learning um, in our series as we've been going on these couple of weeks that that's not the case at all. In fact, the book of Psalms, remember I told you there's 150 Psalms, so 50 or one-third of those Psalms, 50 of those Psalms are Psalms of lament, where the writer, most often David, is crying out to God. Uh, we also know in the Scriptures in the Old Testament is the book of Lamentations, and there we also see writers of some prophets and others who are crying out to God in their greatest time of need. So what, what does it mean to be able to do that? Uh, we've been learning that to cry out to God in our times of trouble, in our challenges, in the um, afflictions that we have, that God responds in a powerful way. Well, I'm going to lead us into two Psalms today, Psalm 44 and Psalm 126. So if you want to gra grab your Bible or your electronic device, go to Psalm 44. Let's, let's start there for a second. And uh, let me just kind of set this up for a minute. The, this is a psalm that's uh, the first eight verses are talking about um, uh, how great they feel about their uh, union with God is, that God is blessing them, that they feel close to God, that, that they know that their enemies can't overwhelm them, that, that they know that God is near and, and God is um, overwhelming them with their grace and with his presence. But then something changes in verse 9 of this psalm. Just like with many of the psalms, there's this cry out and then there's this word of hope at the end. And this psalm is just like that. But in verse 9, we all of a sudden start to see that things are changing. So instead of celebrating what they see in the presence of God, um, acknowledging that God is with them and God is uh, overwhelming them with his grace and his presence, something changes and now the, the tone, the mood, the, the call out, the cry is much different. So let's read along with this psalm, beginning with uh, verse 9. But now you have rejected and humbled us. So he's crying out to God. So God, you have rejected and you have humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. So you can already get an idea of, of what this is like, that this is really not good stuff. So let's, let's drop down to verses 19 to 26, and it gets even worse. But you crushed us, and you made us a haunt for jackals and covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it? And since he knows the secrets of our heart, yet for, for your sake we face all day long, we are considered as sheep. To be slaughtered. The Apostle Paul uses that in his writings as well. Awake, O Lord. So he's trying to rustle God. Awake. Do, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? Because our bodies are now clinging to the ground and we're brought down into the dust. This is, this is some pretty um, intense stuff here. Rise up and help us. Redeem us because of your unfailing love. So it gives us a sense of, of what's going on in the heart of the psalmist, that the psalmist uh, is crying out to God and sees that uh, some things are definitely grieving them. So the psalmist is, is weeping, he's grieving, he's, he's calling out the uncertainty, the abandonment that comes with that. 
So over the last couple of weeks, I've been trying to teach you this definition of lament. And, and what I said in week one, and I'm going to still say today, is that, that we have to be careful in Christianity that we have not lost the, the spiritual act to lament. Um, you know, we can't paint this face that, that life is rosy and, and, and it's all Jesus and stars when the reality is that, that life is tough, isn't it? So I gave you a working definition, let's go back over it today, of what it means to lament. Lament means to mourn. Like, think about when you mourned over someone's death, when you mourned over a loved one who has died or a a personal loss. It means to express your grief about, uh, to express regret or disappointment over something considered unsatisfactory. So think about something that's horrible going on not only in your life, but in the life of your community or even the world that's unsatisfactory. That's, that's a reason to lament. Uh, something that's unreasonable, something that's unfair. And we've seen a lot of unreasonable and unfair things in our lifetimes, haven't we? To lament means to also protest against. It means to speak out against or to complain about something. So this working definition has really been important uh, to help us to understand why lament is a spiritual practice and why we as Christians should continue to lean into that. So when you take a look at the writings of the scriptures, when you look at the Old Testament or when you look at the New Testament, there's some pretty black and white things that come out of those writings. But I believe that the Psalms and the book of Lamentations kind of give us a little bit of wiggle room in between that it's this way or that way. And what it does in these books of the Psalms and, and of the book of Lamentations, it actually brings us to a place where we can understand that there's a way to integrate our faith story in the midst of our weeping, in the midst of our tears, that we can recognize our vulnerability when it comes to being uh, in the presence of God. The Psalms find that sweet spot, and they find a sweet spot between what I'm going to call religiosity and secularity. So religiosity, so if you're a person of religiosity, if you're an ultra-religious person, then you likely have adopted the behavior that says that, that you're not allowed to weep, you're not allowed to cry, you're not allowed to show emotion, because if you show emotion about something, especially something that's not going right with your life, that that's an expression about a leave in that. A person of religiosity might be as far as to say that, that woundedness is a weakness, Now, secularity, that's kind of the other end of the spectrum. And secularity, if you're a person of secularity or a person of the culture, then you're going to say that that, that your emotions, you're well in tune with that, but that you allow your emotions to overwhelm you. You allow your emotions to rule your life. That even though you know something is different because you're so emotional about it, you're not going to pursue something different. You're just going to remain emotional. So that's the difference between religiosity and secularity. And that is where the Psalms bring us. It brings us into understanding and helps us to have a place that that lives in the midst of that. In fact, the Psalms allow us to pray our feelings and to bring our deepest feelings before God so that we can process. So sometimes when when we see life is not going right, um, we're not sure how to react. So I want to take us now to Psalm 126, and I want to look at the first couple of verses in that. If you look at verses one through three, you're going to see like chapter 44 or Psalm 44, we're going to see the same thing in those early chapters that 126 and 144 are uh, very much the same. They're praising God. They're talking about the goodness that comes with God. But in Psalm 126 verse four, we see a shift happen. In Psalm 44, that shift happened in verse nine. In Psalm 126, it happens in verse four. And, and the writer begins to call out 
uh, that something has happened. And we're not sure from where it's come or why, but he quotes these words. He cries out to God and he says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, um, like the streams in the Negev. Now the Negev is a, is a very desolate place. It's a desert. Um, so, so what we're wondering is, is this psalmist uh, writing about some metaphoric desert? Are, are they in kind of a desert of life? Are they, are they going through a famine? Maybe it's a real thing. Or have they just lost a huge battle? We, we really don't know the answers to those questions. But what we do know is that, that things are not going, crying out to God that life is like a desolate place, that they're feeling blasted at best, and that, that God needs to come to their rescue. They're crying out to God, and they feel like God just doesn't hear what they're having to say. So that's why I want to, to kind of lead you through a couple of things this morning. So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with what we're hearing in Psalm 44? How do we deal with what we're listening to in Psalm 126? Here's a couple of foundational points, and, and these are really critical, and I hope that you'll write some notes today because I think that, that through the week, if you're like me, you want to kind of go back and you want to uh, revisit some things that you learn. But here's the first thing, and that is that even though you're walking with God as a believer, you must anticipate trouble in your life. You have to. If you, if you don't anticipate trouble in your life, if you don't believe trouble is going to come, you're setting yourself up for failure. In fact, here's how we set ourselves up for failure as Christians, how, how we set ourselves up for failure as believers. We'll say, if I keep the laws of God, if I'm walking in holiness, if I'm praying to Jesus, and if I'm doing good things, then the Lord Jesus promises nothing bad will ever happen to me. Have you ever prayed that? Have you ever thought that? I mean, it's okay. You're, you're at home. I can't hear what you're saying. Uh, there were times in my life that I thought that. And so I'm, I'm guessing that maybe there are times that you've thought that. And that's the challenge. That's the trouble. What to do? Because we have convinced ourselves, if we're just walking with Jesus and doing the Jesus thing, that he's going to protect us from all of those things. In fact, some of us might cry out when trouble comes. We might cry out and say, Lord, uh, what have I done? How have I sinned against you? Now, there are times we have sinned against God, right? Uh, by omission or commission, things that we've done or things that we should do but we haven't done. So there is sin that contributes to that. But oftentimes we find ourselves in the midst of this struggle wondering, if I follow Jesus, why does it mean that I still have trouble? Well, it means Christians are wrong. I don't know how else to say it. Christians are wrong and, and Christians are supposed to expect tears. And just because you, you have tears in your life, you have to understand that, that things will go wrong, and you have to posture yourself toward that. We have to be in that posture. Um, we can't fall prey to the words that, that I must not be praying hard enough, or I must not be praying the right prayers, or, or I must not be holy enough, or I must not be good enough, because if I was all those things, these troubles would not come. We need to understand the truth is that the Scriptures tell us, no matter how closely we walk with God, things will come our way. You see, when we, when we find out that, that, um, that, that when you become a person of faith, I'm convinced that you end up weeping more because all of a sudden you're more in tune with what is going on around you and you learn more about what God is wanting to do in your life. Here's, here's two, two places in Scripture as to where I can support that. The first is in the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. Listen to what the prophet is saying. So he's proclaiming the word of God. I, God, will remove from them their heart of stone and give them what? Give them what? A heart of what? Flesh. God will take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Now, what does that mean? 
It can mean a lot of things, right? But let me tell you what it probably means. What it probably means, and what I think it means, is that as I become a disciple of Jesus, as I become in relationship with the Lord, that, that my heart begins to change, and it becomes more fleshy. It becomes more in tune. It becomes more palatable. It becomes, when I've come to embrace the teachings of Jesus, my heart is changed. And what that means is, is that when I start looking around in my community, in the world, and I see things that don't jive right, when I see things that, that, that aren't right at all, that, that don't make sense or, or injustices, it means my heart is going to be wrecked over that. And it means I'm going to lament. It means I'm going to weep and I'm going to cry out. Some will say, but, but I'm still saying that, that if you're a person of religion, you're not supposed to do that. Well, well, let me remind you of something. The scriptures also tell us that God came into the world, right? So we're the only um, world religion that claims this truth, that God actually flesh. The only world religion that professes that. And, and that Jesus, Jesus had a heart of flesh. And what do we know about Jesus? Jesus wept. He was a man of sorrows, the scripture says, acquainted with his grief. And we understand that Jesus wept often and his heart was broken. So we have to grow, know that as we grow closer to God, that we are going to weep more. We are going to grieve more. We are going to be closer to the heart of God. You see, um, some of us, we say, well, well I want to be like Jesus. And, 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 and I believe as long as I'm doing good and I'm following his ways and all that, um, you know, hey, nothing bad's going to happen to me. We still want to hold on to that. But, but I'd, I'd say that, that, that Jesus was walking pretty closely with God, right? Would you agree with that? And didn't bad things happen to him? Of course they did. You know, he ultimately was crucified on a cross. So we know that we're not exempt from that. But what we do know is <clears throat> when we cry, two things happen. We cry because of the things that grieve us, and we cry over the fact that we are grieved, Okay, so those are the reasons for the tears um, that we have. Um, so the second thing I want to share with you is um, I want to use a metaphor. Um, I want to use kind of a farming metaphor. Um, we need to plant our tears. We need to plant them. So, so if, we, if we go back to the uh, verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 126, it talks about um, a farmer. It talks about a person who's planting something and trying to grow a crop. So listen, let's go back to Farming 101. We take a seed, we dig a hole, we put it in the ground, we fertilize it, we water it, and then what happens? Uh, when the crop comes, we celebrate, we bring in the crop, we take it to the grocery stores, we understand that's where the grocery stores get everything, and it's important to know that because that seed was properly cared for and watered, that it prospered. But what we read here in verses 5 and 6, it says, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. So it's this farming metaphor. Sow means carrying seed to sow will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. So, so when we first look at this, we would go like, okay, this is, this is normal stuff. But, but what is, I mean, you know, a farmer goes out and plants and it gets watered and all that, and they rejoice with joy when they bring the crop in, right? Okay? But what is this farmer doing? This farmer's weeping. This farmer goes out. So, so the metaphor that we see in this psalm of lament is, is that the farmer is sowing something, but then the farmer is weeping or crying tears into what they're planting. So kind of what I get out of this is it's telling us not to avoid shedding tears. 
but to do something with them, to plant them, uh, to see them grow, to plant our tears. You know, religious people have a tendency to, to stuff down their tears. They, um, I can't cry. I'm a follower of Jesus because if I were to do otherwise, I can't show emotion. That'd mean I'm weak. And, and we know that that's not true. But, but then we, we know we can't just dump all of our tears and do nothing with them either. So that's why this verse is, is so important. In other words, don't waste your sorrows. Don't waste the troubles. Don't waste the challenges. But plant them with your tears. It's like investing money. If you have money and you see a stock or a bond or, or something that, that you want to invest in or a precious metal, you spend your money to acquire that. You invest in that with the hope that, that what you're investing in will reap some sort of return or benefit, right? And, and it's the same thing that we see here. So, so you're sowing your money and you're putting your things into um, the future and you're using what you have. Now, what are we investing toward when we invest our tears? We find it in Psalm 30, chapter 5, uh, where it says that, we remain, that, that tears remain for a night, but rejoicing comes what? In the morning. Some translations say rejoicing comes every morning. And we need to live into that. So that's the purpose and the reason why we invest our tears. Here's a second example. So that was an Old Testament example. Here's a New Testament example, the writings of Paul, the great apostle, his second letter to the church in Corinth. And Paul is talking about tears producing joy, planting tears producing joy. He writes, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs all things. So, so what he says is the things that are happening now are short term. They won't last, but what we invest in the sorrow of today will produce something great in the future is where he's taking us. So we're not just waiting for the affliction to go away, but, but we're understanding that the affliction that we're under is producing, achieving something even bigger. And Paul says it produces even bigger joy. And that's the important thing that we see. So why do we shed tears? <clears throat> so, that, that, um, so that we can see the goodness of God and joy to come. So, so here's the real world question. What, what do you do with your tears? Do you like stuff them down? I can't show any tears. Or do you like, you know, blab them all out? I mean, the Psalm says that, that we've got to do something with them and, and to invest those. Here, here's the third thing it says. It says not only that, but, but we need to also pray through our tears. Pray through our tears. Man, I can't tell you how many times I have found myself on my knees, or I found myself prostrate, prostrate on the ground, prostrate totally on the ground, and, and crying out to God, weeping, because my heart is broken. Many of you can relate to that too, can't you? You know what I'm talking about, of what that is. So what we need to understand about the, the lament psalms, and what we need to understand about the words in the book of Lamentations is, it's okay for us to do that. Again, we have to be careful that we're not a person of religiosity that, that negates the ability to do that. But we have to understand that, that we recognize. And as we read these psalms, especially these lament psalms, we know that the, that the person writing this is pretty hot about something. And it's usually they're, they're hot about God, feeling like God has abandoned them, that God has brought trouble upon them, that God has um, 
uh, harmed them in some way. God has not protected them from battle. They're hot about all these issues, and they're crying out in some great way. But what we also see is when they cry out, we see that they are before God in their raw form. They are before God in their raw form, and there's no holds barred. They're not looking for what's the exact right word I should say. They're just blurting it out and shaking their fists and whatever. When you, when you pray a prayer like that, when you cry out to God through your tears, it transforms the heart of the one who's lamenting. Here's a couple of ways it does that. It, um, it, it, it brings you into a realization of God's grace that comes into focus. So when you cry out to God and lament, you begin to see God's grace happening. The second thing it does is a visualization of the cross. So when you see the cross and you focus on the cross, then that changes everything for you. And thirdly, an assurance of God's glory is ever-present. So see, when you're crying out, though, you have to remind yourself um, that God understands your weeping. Now, uh, why did I use that word remind? I mean, I have to remind myself that God understands my weeping? Yeah, let me tell you why. Because a lot of times when we're weeping, we're selfish. I'm sorry to say that. We, we are. We're, you know, it, it's kind of like we're, we're crying out because it's not what we wanted. We're crying out because we feel that it, it's just, you know, something, somebody deserves something better than us. Why didn't we get it as well? And so it becomes a little self-centered. So, so that's why we have to remember so that the focus isn't solely on us. Remember I said earlier that the pattern of these psalms of lament and the pattern of the book of Lamentations is that we see all these rough and tough and troubled things happening, but in the end, there's always the promise of hope. There's always the promise of restoration. There's always the promise of something good that is to come. So we know that God understands the problem. God understands the challenges. God understands the reason why we're weeping. And that's why it is perfectly okay. Listen to me. It is perfectly okay for you to open your broken heart before God. It's not a sign of weakness. The scriptures say that being real before God is a powerful strength. And we see the strength that comes from that. You know, unless you really look closely at the Psalms, you, you, you might miss the importance. The Psalms are, are usually somebody who's like um, waving their hands frantically. Usually it's David, King David, and, and the challenges that come from that. And he's crying out from God by feeling abandoned. But, but we understand the Psalm to lead us to a greater truth. And that is in the midst of our hurting, God is there. So may, maybe when you describe this to a friend, maybe your friend's um, look at you differently. Maybe these are Christian friends and you talk to them about your, your brokenness and your weeping and your crying out to God. And let's say they don't understand that. Let me tell you, there is no theological way to do this. There are no exact words to do this. You just come before God raw. You come before God who you are in your brokenness. Whether you are a lifelong believer or a new believer, you come before God and God gives you permission to not have it all together when you bring that prayer of lament before him. You also have to visualize the cross. And, and when I was talking a little bit earlier when I said about praying, you have to visualize the cross because see, here's what happens. We, we kind of self-loathe, don't we? We, we kind of self-pity uh, ourselves and we say, you know, why is God doing this to me? Why am I so bad? How come God has abandoned me? But you know what? When we look at it differently and we see Jesus on the cross, man, 
It all changes, doesn't it? Because when we see Jesus on the cross, we see a man of sorrows who is broken for us, who's hanging on a cross, and we go like, man, you know, what is that? And, and, and what we see is, is that Jesus is the one who was the one who took the place of our sin. And so, so when we look at the cross and we see Jesus on it, we come to a new understanding that God knows exactly what that means, that Jesus knows what it means to look to heaven and know that it's closed. Jesus knows what it means to cry out to God in a prayer of dereliction and not hear nary a word. Jesus knows what it is that you're going through, and you're not alone with that. In fact, in Gethsemane, he calls out those words. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and we see the importance of that. The sorrow, he says, is so crushing that it is about ready to destroy me. We see the significance of this crime. What did Jesus mean by the sorrow is so great? He was worried he wouldn't get to the cross. He was worried that his sorrows would kill him before he could fulfill what he was called to do. You see, here's why... It's important. When we cry out and we see Jesus on the cross, your life will never be the same because you see it in the way of Jesus. You'll understand that Jesus cried out just like you're crying out, that Jesus sought God just like you're seeing God, that Jesus felt pain just like you're feeling pain. But what we understand, though, is when we see it through the cross is we know that it's not just on us, but that he walks with us. You see the cross and you say, even though I feel overwhelmed, abandoned by God, I know that I'm not. Even though I feel God is picking on me for my sins, I know he's not. And we know the truth that comes from that. You see, friends, it's good theology after all to cry out to God. It's good theology to cry out to God in your pain. And when you do, it claims an unquestionable truth that God and God alone has the strength, the power, and the desire to take away and get you through. 